0: This is Celluloid Jelly, a podcast featuring a couple of ex-video store guys who still just love talking about movies. I'm CJ Talbot. Joining me, as always, will be Caesar Alejandro from Filmsmash.com. For this episode, we're taking a look back at a classic drive-in creature feature, 1958's The Blah. Alright guys, welcome back. This is episode 45. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm CJ, and uh, introduce yourself, sir. Um,
1: I'm Cesar Alejandro. How's it going, everyone?
0: Cool, man. How you been?
1: Um, not bad. You know, I think uh, it's finally feeling like fall over here on the East Coast in Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty welcome, honestly.
0: Now, did you recently have Comic-Con and stuff?
1: ComCon uh, is next weekend.
0: Next so not weekend,
1: the, it's the eighteenth. Uh, Baltimore
0: ComCon. Are you guys gearing up for that at Collector's Corner?
1: Um. Well, because I work mostly in Bel Air, there's not so much I have to do to gear up for it. Um, there's a little bit of uh, tasking I need to take care of, but it's very minuscule compared to what they're doing over at the main shop.
0: Okay. Will you be attending, or are you going to be working the booth the whole time?
1: Uh, I'll be working on Sunday, so um, I guess if this episode gets out there early, um, or before the convention, um, I'll see you there, hopefully, any of our uh, listeners.
0: I didn't even think about that, you said this coming weekend, and this won't air until the following Monday, oh well, sorry guys, missed your shot. (laughs) 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 Alright, so uh, what have you been watching, what do you want to recommend to people? Now you mentioned uh, you yeah. want to talk about Joker, uh, but let's can we can we save that till the end, just in case uh, yeah, for spoiler fair. warnings
1: Absolutely. and stuff. Um, I saw a film I saw recently that I quite enjoyed uh, was the new film from Takashi Miike. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a movie, movie called First Love. Uh, it's this really energetic gangster love story with ultra violence and limbs getting cut off and. Um, bunker scenarios
0: <laughs> Okay. Um, All right.
1: really really enjoyable so the movie itself uh, in terms of plot it takes place over the course of one evening um, you have your main character a guy named Leo who is um, an up and coming boxer who gets uh, a pretty devastating diagnosis from a doctor so he's feeling pretty shitty about himself and he's kind of depressed um, as he's walking the streets of Tokyo uh, he comes across a young girl who's being chased by a man And in his anger, he just kind of takes it out on the guy and knocks him out in one shot. Um, He finds out later on that that gentleman is actually a cop um, who we know to be dirty, but he does not. So he and the girl take off running into night. Um, We find out that because of what the cop has done as a dirty cop and his dealings with organized crime that um, the two of them are now being sought by not only the Japanese Yakuza, Chinese Triad, as well as police officers, and all sorts of different kind of crazy hitmen and people. Um, And he takes it upon himself to kind of protect the girl. Cool. It's uh, super, super crazy. Um, The beginning of the film is fairly straightforward, but uh, it really ramps up into, I think, what a lot of people expect out of Takashi Miike, especially from his early 2000s and late 90s output. Um, So I would say it's probably one of his coolest films in years, very slick, stylized, um, really enjoyable, and the last act is, you know, bodies being stacked on bodies, really enjoyable.
0: Nice. Uh, now, how did you watch this? Was this uh, in theaters? Did you have a link for streaming, um, or yeah, I, um, how I've is it available? A, yeah,
1: I watched a screener, but it has, it is actually playing in limited release in theaters right now, so... I, as I, if I remember correctly, like for people in the Baltimore area, Arundel Mills is playing it currently, okay. um, as of today, anyway, as of recording.
0: Yeah, and I, I haven't checked, but I'm sure it's playing. You know, New York and LA and some other markets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely Mike's known for some pretty crazy shit going in his movies, right?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I think in recent years he's definitely settled down into a more. I don't want to say classical-style director, because he still has um, an incredible output. He's amazingly prolific. Over 100 films that he's directed, like, he's probably closer to 115 yeah. right now. But um, this film...
0: There's like two movies a year, right? Sometimes more, you know? <laughs> that's crazy. That That's yeah. like old Hollywood, when they used to make like a movie a week. and Directors yeah. would just churn them out. Like six movies a year.
1: It's, um, it's awesome. It really is. So,
0: um, like now you're, you're the expert, but do you find that like, that he is because of the, uh, the volume of output that he's putting out, do you find that the quality s- sort of, you know, goes up and down?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, that's inevitable with any director. Yeah, um, I think as he's refined his directing style, he's become a much better director with more f- films along the lines of like 13 Assassins and um, Harakiri uh, being released within the last 10 years or so. Yeah. I think he kind of got his name out there because of how energetic and kind of like raw a lot of his films were. I mean, you have cult classics like Ichi the Killer or, or Audition. Audition, I think is an early example of him kind of turning into like the the better director that he is now. Okay. Ichi – Killer is a movie that a lot of people love, but it's also, in my opinion, noticeably overrated.
0: Wow. Okay. Right.
1: Yeah, I think you know it's interesting to hear that, like, in terms of Japanese directors, especially modern day ones, he is one of the ones that most people in the West would recognize the name or at least the work that he's done. Over in Japan, he's really not that notable as of a director aside from within the industry because he always gets amazing talents to work with him, but. In many cases, a lot of his films underperform in terms of box office. So he's not really a bankable director, despite his notoriety.
0: Wow, really? That's actually very surprising.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the last couple films that he did were, um, like, they lost lost money at the box office, so it's kind of tough. But, I mean, he works consistently. So I think uh, the market in the United States and around the world opens up a lot of opportunity for him. So he's not, uh, he's not starving, is what I'm going to say.
0: <laughs> no, not with 115 movies under his belt. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. Uh, anything else? Yeah, but
1: I highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I put, I, I wrote a review for it. So I mean, maybe we'll link it to, I guess, the, the podcast page. But
0: Yeah, I saw yeah, that. I, I'll I definitely put re- it in the show notes.
1: Yeah, I really can't recommend it enough. It's one of my favorite films of the year.
0: Nice. All right, high praise there. Awesome. Uh yeah, well, you just talked for like six minutes or so. I'm going to talk for like 30 seconds because I haven't really watched a a whole lot this week. Um, But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, as we get closer to Halloween, you start kind of like uh, some people just kind of like shut off everything else and just watch horror movies all month long. And that's cool. That's if that's your thing. Totally. I get the 31 days of horror thing. Um, For me, I kind of like to pepper things in. Um, and, and, you know, not go like whole hog into it. Um, so I like to start light. <laughs> so this week I watched, um, I watched house, uh, the 1980s house with William Cott and George Wendt, uh, okay. which is a, which is a movie that, uh, that I quite enjoy. Um, you know, but it's not a good movie. <laughs> it's not a good movie at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, but for anyone who hasn't seen it, it it is about a uh, a novelist um, who is separated from his wife after the disappearance of their child. Um, his his grandmother or great aunt—I can't remember which—I think it's his great aunt um, passes away. She actually commits suicide in her own house, and he goes. He's he's her only living relative, so he goes to uh, you know to bury her. And he sort of like takes up residence in the house, and his great aunt thought the house was haunted. So strange things start to happen. George Went plays his sort of, sort of, you know, sort of charming, sort of, you know, kind, no, but very nosy neighbor. Um, and uh, <laughs> he's writing a novel about his experience in Vietnam, and while that's happening, he starts to see weird things in the house and starts to believe that his aunt was not crazy and that the house is actually haunted and um it is a relic of its time uh the quote-unquote ghosts that are in the house are done with like body suits and some pretty terrible makeup and prosthetics um they're not ethereal at all they're almost like uh I don't know. It's almost like like the leprechaun or ghoulies. It's like that type of like eighties, um, you know, makeup effects, and uh, and it's just silly. I mean, it, you can't take it seriously while the while the film is playing. Um, and it's actually one of those movies that I think uh, because of that, um, I think if if you were going to update it, I think this movie might actually benefit from a remake. Um, so that you could get the special effects right and uh, and get a little bit more serious and a little bit more scary with it. Because it's not really scary. Um, yeah, so. you know, I've
1: never seen either of the house films. They, they have a pretty good reputation, but uh, they're ones I've skipped over in my in, you know my viewings.
0: I feel like the first one's not as satisfying because it's not scary and it doesn't lean into the silliness as much as the second movie. I find that I actually enjoy the second movie more. Uh, just because it's a little bit more nuts and a little bit, you know, funnier. Um, but, uh, but yeah, House, not a good movie, but, uh, you know, <laughs> if you're just looking for some sort of like, you know, campy 80s artifacts, uh, you know, give it a shot. It's on Prime. Uh, I think House 2 is on Prime too, although I haven't gone back and rewatched it yet. Um, and then the other one that I watched, I rewatched Clue because it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, we've probably talked about Clue on the show before, so I will keep it really short. Uh, but, you know, it's got a great cast, obviously. Uh, it's got some terrific performances. Uh, you know, it's another one of those, like, mid-'80s comedies that was touched by John Landis, who was, like, a co-producer and a co-writer on it. Um, you know, it's it's fun. It's got an ominous mood, um, which I think works really well to keep it as a as a fun but light Halloween movie. So if you don't want to, like really dive into horror, I think that's a, a really good movie to watch.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's pretty solid, all-around, satisfying holiday viewing.
0: Yeah, and at this point, you know, they've been talking about doing a remake for so long, but recently, I guess it was announced that uh, Ryan Reynolds is attached to a new clue, and Jason Bateman is in negotiations to write, direct, and star as well. So there's some pretty pretty heavy hitters to try to remake this movie, uh, which personally I, I I don't think they should touch. But you know uh, you you could hardly get two better people to attach to it though. Yeah, I'm just I'm
1: just waiting for you know the people to come out of the woodwork saying you know this this movie's not
0: as good as the board game. <laughs> well, I think the board <laughs> game's really fun. I you know what we definitely talked about this before. Because, like, about a year ago, um, Chelsea and her family got really into playing Clue. And, and, you know, we would sit up and play, like, three or four games of Clue at night, uh, like, on the weekends. And I never lost. And it frustrated the shit out of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Are you cheating? Are you cheating, CJ? No, it's just, like, I have a system, and it's, you know, it, it, it's process of elimination, man. They even give you a form to check off stuff. It's not that hard. Yeah,
1: it's just, it's basically murder Sudoku.
0: Right, there you go. There you go. So yeah, so there you go. Uh, a full recommendation for Clue and a half recommendation for House. Okay. All right. We're off and running, man. This is good. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to touch on before we get to the blob? Um.
1: Hmm. No, I think I'm good. I feel like we wait. Uh, for people who don't know, we actually had to postpone the recording for this because of various circumstances. Um, so I, you know, to be honest, I'd rather just jump right into it.
0: Yeah, cool. Well, the blob was your choice. So, um, this is the 1958 version of the blob. Uh, what is it about Cesar? Well, uh, the blob is basically, uh, um,
1: one of your typical drive creature features from that era. Um. It takes place in a small rural town in Pennsylvania um, and you follow two young lovers um, over the course of one night um, when a mysterious asteroid uh, comes down from space and unleashes the blob, which is this growing mass that um, consumes any living matter that it comes into contact with. So um, as the two, um, as this young couple tries to um, warn the townspeople about it to a lot of um, Um, skepticism um the blob continually grows and starts to consume the town um and they have to stop it before it's too late
0: perfect man i don't think i could have done it any better myself finito (laughs) um i love the opening credits for this (laughs) which what what is it about the opening credits that you like (laughs) well it's it's got like a almost it, i mean it's got like an upbeat theme song and sort of like an amorphous psychedelic bent to like the the design that kind of waves over the screen um so it but it in no way represents the tone of the picture so i <laughs> think it's just, because it's just so 1950s early 1960s um that I, I just i'm i'm just tickled by it actually
1: i think um you know
0: and the lyrics are horrible.
1: <laughs> you're right, you're right that the tone doesn't really fit the film. But the film itself is not something you take seriously. Definitely not. Um, it, it's a fun, you know like the first one of the first scenes you see in the film is um, our two leads, Steve Steve McQueen and um, let's see, what's the name of that the actress's name? Um uh, I'm looking it up for this pregnant pause. I don't know. You can help me out, CJ, if you know the answer.
0: <laughs> uh, Jane is played by Anetta Croissant.
1: Yes. Denny, AKA Jane. Um, so like the first time you see them, they're out at like, uh, you know, a, uh, make out point kind of location for that town. Um, I, actually, I lost my train of thought
0: there. <laughs> I don't know where you were going with it either. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> but you you, it. you, mentioned in your synopsis that these were two young lovers, but I get the impression that they're sort of like on their first date. I think that first scene between them, first of all, I think it's kind of a weird um, way to open the film in just like a like an over-the-shoulder shot of her as Jane. And uh, and you're seeing the back of Steve McQueen's head, but they don't really like. It's not like a reveal of Steve McQueen because at the time he was a nobody. He was not a big star, um, so it's not like they were trying to give you like the, you know, the star power reveal. Um, so it's just it it kind of it kind of cuts in like almost midway through like, you know their, what I'm assuming is like their first kiss probably, um. And. Uh, <laughs> I, I like I don't know, I just wanna talk about Jane for a second because I think I think Jane is the best character in the movie actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not nothing against McQueen who, you know, is playing a character named Steve, which I think is hilarious too. Um but the thing I
1: think is hilarious is that he's like twenty eight years
0: old, he's playing a teenager. <laughs> yeah, but we've been yeah, obviously like they're still doing that, like you know, yeah, sure. like Saved by the Bell and Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero and pretty much anything else where you have like twenty four, twenty five year old kids playing fifteen year olds. So, uh, how old is Tom Holland? He's playing a sixteen 20. year old kid. He's like twenty, right? No, <laughs> he's older. He's over twenty one. Is he? Yeah, he's an adult. (laughs) Well, 18's an adult in the United States, so... He can drink legally, I think.
1: Well, he's also from the UK, where you can probably drink when you're 18.
0: You can probably drink when you're 12 over there. (laughs) Anyway... He acts drunk drunk plenty of times. (laughs) But, like, going back to, um... Going back to the blob, I, I think, um... I think immediately they establish that Jane is not like a floozy or a bimbo. Um, she corrects him about her name, like when he yeah, he, he tells calls her Jenny. Uh, he calls her Janie girl. Janie, yeah. And uh, and she immediately is like, my name is Jane, just Jane. <laughs> and
1: no, 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 wait, doesn't he call her Jenny?
0: No, Janie girl. He says. I even wrote it down.
1: I thought he called her Jenny, and she was like, "I bet you take all the other girls up here." It's like, no, Jenny. I mean, Jane. <laughs> Doesn't he say
0: that? No, he. But he he tries to get too close too fast. I think you know, which is something that a lot of guys end up doing. You know, um, you know, he tries to call her like his own little pet name, and she's not having it. Like she um, she confronts him right away, which is awesome. My memory
1: is in is in um, conflict with the mono audio I watched. This
0: version is <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then you're right. She does call him out on his, like, uh, on what her perceived approach is from him, and, and she says something like, uh, you know, for a minute there, I thought that that shooting star business wasn't just part of your line, you know, but of course, now she sees that it is, and then he has to defend himself and say that it's not. He immediately, or she immediately puts him on edge, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like,
1: okay, well, how about we go back
0: to town? Not working out. Yeah, and then they see the the shooting star. No Claire Danes in sight, though. Um, yeah, I knew you were going to bring that up. <laughs> so, but yeah, I I like her. She's a, a fairly strong character. Um, later in the film, she has no problem like stepping up and defending Steve. You know, she she helps him um, to convince the doc of what's going on early in the film. Uh, she has no problem, like, jumping in and talking to the police with him. Um, you know, when they, when they question him, she steps up. Um, when Sergeant Burt accuses him of staging the accident at Doc's place, um, he says something like, you know, it's part of their plan to make us look stupid or silly. And Jane scolds him, and she's like, I think you're doing that pretty well by yourself, Sergeant. So I kind of love her. <laughs>
1: I think, um, there's a couple of scenes, like, uh, I guess, when Steve, uh, meets up with his friends to, uh, I mean, we're jumping around, of course, as, as we typically do, um, where he goes to investigate the, uh, the old man's, the, um, house where they find a the dog. She's got no problem kind of like just hanging out and, um, with all these other guys where you would imagine 1950s to be, uh, you know, a kind of, um, I don't know how you describe it, but, uh. Chauvinistic kind of thing going on. I mean, they tease her, um, Steve, and her a little bit because they're on a date, but it's, uh, you know, she's able to assert herself within that group. Uh, Not that there's anything um, super negative that they have to say about her, but she's like, yeah, you know, we should take this dog. Let's take this dog with us. (laughs) I guess is the crux of that scene. There's not too much heavy undercurrent to most of this film, you know? But yeah, like she's, she's very, um, a very strong character. That's I guess another, genre films tend to give females that role more often than in other ones.
0: Yeah, that's another point in her favor, though. She likes dogs, so yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and she's got a Way kind heart. Than cats, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I had never seen this movie before. This was a first-time watch for me. So, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, to be honest, and and because we were going to record this a week and a half ago at this point, or, or something, a week ago, um, I think I watched it two weeks ago, and I was surprised, because, you know, I, I'm no connoisseur, you know, or expert in, like, 50s sci-fi, but I was expecting a little bit more of the blob in the movie, and I think it's, you know, obviously because this was a smaller budget film, this was, this was actually, like, a B-movie, um... Financially, you know, they probably didn't have a ton of money, but it's fairly minimalistic, and I think it works out pretty well for them.
1: Yeah, I think uh, a lot of films that are limited by their uh, by their budget, especially from this this era, um, you know, I think people can look back at movies like Night of the Living Dead or you know the guerrilla filmmaking of you know video from the horror films from the eighties. You know, people look back at that amazingly with a lot of fondness, and what people are able to achieve on, um, you know, smaller, smaller budgets and time, you know, can be pretty amazing, and you appreciate it more.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, even when you look at something like Spielberg's Jaws, you know, I mean, like, you barely see the shark in that movie until the end, so, I mean, this, you really get, like, you get, like, three or four good shots of the blob um, as, sort of, like, that amorphous, like, gelatinous mass, kind of, like, bouncing around a couple times, but really, like you get the big money shot at the end when it's over top of the diner.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the scenes where they have the the blob flowing through
0: small little crevices and stuff are. Yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, that's, creepy. Cool, yeah, that's it's very creepy. So it reminds me of like uh, the T one thousand in Terminator two.
1: Yeah, I mean certainly I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if you know. It was some kind of influence on it. I mean, The Blob is a fairly well-known film, despite, you know, at, at the time of its release being fairly, you know, innocuous when it was put out in theaters. Yeah. So I think um, definitely the fact that it would have a future superstar and Steve McQueen in it um, helped that film. But, you know, I guarantee you, a guy like James Cameron seen The Blob, so...
0: Yeah, well, I mean, he started with Corman, man. It's uh, you know, Piranha Two, so he was no stranger to like uh, schlocky B grade shoestring budget filmmaking. Yeah, <laughs> that's where he made his bones. Um,
1: as most as most big directors do.
0: Yeah, I'd I you, one of the things that I like about this movie, you know, and like I said, you know, as far as 50 science fiction goes, you know, I've seen. You know, a handful of the big ones. You know, I, I've not really done a deep dive, um, but you know, in my experience, a lot of science fiction from the era tells stories with protagonists who are like either government agents or scientists or military. Um, but the blob is like an interruption into the daily life of ordinary people, which I think kind of sets it apart a little bit from some of the other ones of the era.
1: I mean, like protagonist perspective.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I, but I think that's a, that's important because I think it, it strengthens sort of the theme that the movie's sort of going for. You know, with the, I mean, the blob is essentially an incredibly generic representation of you know fear of the unknown, and uh, you know, in a lot of science fiction movies, you know, when the scientist or the government agent is the protagonist. You know, like, those people are typically trained and prepared, um, and not that we can't identify with them on a certain level, you know, uh, but, you know, it's certainly more identifiable, you know, with two kids making out in a car, you know, or the the small town, you know, the small town sheriff, you know, or the, the, the kids who are just hot rodding down the street. Um,
1: with, the, uh, with the film itself being, um, as I understand it, it was also released as a double feature. Um, and th- this is a type of film that would have been in a, uh, a drive in theater. Yeah. Um, starting the film off with characters who are, you know, in a car, which drive-in theaters also have a, a good reputation as being like makeout places. So I think that, that kind of helps that argument that, um,
0: yeah, I and mean, it's definitely aiming towards being a youth picture. audience in their, in their role. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, you were talking about the old man uh, that, they, that they take to the doctor earlier in the movie. Um, I, I guess, why is it always an old man who's the first victim in these things? I don't know. <laughs> it really it's is. Like, I mean, he looks like an old prospector or something, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh,
1: whenever I think about an old man who gets it at the beginning of a film, I always think about killer clowns from outer space. <laughs> I
0: haven't seen in that particular- forever.
1: Yeah, well, like, basically it's an old dude who's basically this guy from The Blob, um, except he talks to his dog. And the dog just kind of stares blankly at him. Nice. He's literally, except, you know, Killer Clowns is from the 1980s. I, I imagine in my mind that this guy is, you know, if that old man from The Blob hadn't been killed by The Blob, he would have survived to have been this guy.
0: Yeah. I think you know, not not to get too, uh, you know, not to not to read too much into it. But I think symbolically, you know, that this movie ultimately is about how you know uh, youth are crying out uh, over over issues and get ignored by the older generation. And you know, symbolically, at the beginning of this movie, it is the older generation that is going to die by their curiosity into the unknown. Um, I I think, um, you know, I mean, the 50s was heavy in science fiction movies, and uh, I went back just, like, I took, like, two minutes and just kind of, like, googled, like, the space race and got, like, a timeline. So, like, this movie, The Blob, was filmed in July of 57 and August of 57. Uh, it was released in, I think it was September of 58, but don't quote me on that, um, but Sputnik didn't launch until October of 57. So we didn't even have the first satellite in orbit before this movie, you know, came, or before this movie was was shot. Uh, but the attitude at the time was that we were going into space. I mean, it was generally accepted that space was the next phase of human exploration, you know. So, and and it was not just in movies, but, I mean, you know, politically people were talking about it and the blob takes that basic fear of the unknown and crystallizes it you know uh you know it's so generic but it's you know it represents what we might find in the the great unknown of space um
1: yeah i mean like there's there's a lot of weird weird ideas i mean there are other films that exist around that time where there's you know friendly Aliens, Utopia, you know, as well as your typical natural peril. So, I mean, there are other films that kind of jump the other direction.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I like that this is a very specifically generic unknown thing that they can't even put a name to. They never call it The Blob once throughout the movie. It's not aliens coming to destroy us. It's not, you know, aliens coming with a warning like in Day the Earth Stood Still. It's not us in space coming into contact with something else. It is. It is the. You know. It is. It is just a simple representation that what is in space could destroy us, and and I, I like that simplicity.
1: Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, that kind of couples well with the, your arguments about um, the youth crying out for um, to be heard. I mean, because you know, certainly this kind of exploration is something that wouldn't take place over the course of, you know, a single person's lifetime. It's, you know, to this day, it's still, it's still continuing, um, though probably to a lesser, lesser extent um, in our, in this, in this minute, you know, but, uh, you know, it's, the idea of exploration in space is a young person's game, uh, you know, new technologies, new talent, new science.
0: Yeah. I, that's that's very true, absolutely. Um, what, do you, what do you make of the ending of this movie?
1: I think it's uh, strangely um, um, prophetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the final line of the film is, well, in the movie, of course, um, they find out that the weakness of the blob is extreme cold temperatures. So um, the military has come in and they've agreed to drop um, the blob off into the Arctic, um, where uh, it'll hopefully stay cold enough for... Um, the blood never to reanimate and wreak havoc on Earth again. Um, Steve McQueen's final line is something along the lines of, they ask him, do you think it's it'll stay frozen up there? And he says, as long as the Arctic stays cold,
0: or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that resonates much more today, obviously, than in 58. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it was meant as an environmental message, but um, yeah, I mean... I think yeah, I mean certainly that
1: comes off as like like uh, as like a joke, jokey almost. But I wonder how aware they were of things like um, melting ice caps or,
0: yeah. or other things like that. You know. Yeah, I'm was not that sure. That, was that something that um, people knew was happening
1: in the science community, or or, or even, even would someone making a, a B movie be aware of something like that? You know.
0: Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think either way, it works as a commentary on how we kind of kick our problems down the road and leave them for the next generation. You know, just yeah. get it out of sight, out of mind, kind of thing. I, I I don't I don't know whether they're thinking about this or not, but you know, I mean, it, this is this is during the atomic age, so this is post World War II. We've dropped a couple of bombs. You know, we're aware of um, atomic energy, and and nuclear waste is something that is probably becoming an issue at this point. You know, this is. This is fifteen years after the end of World War two and uh, so you know I mean burying our trash in the Arctic you know or or not in the movie but or in the ocean, you know, and hoping that it doesn't adversely affect us later on you know is something that uh that seems seems pretty topical to me yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> When I first watched this movie, I was like, man, this movie is a little bit simpler, a little bit more minimalistic. And I kept thinking to myself, well, why is this movie still considered to be, like, one of the great 1950s sci-fi horror movies? And I think the, the stuff that we're talking about is probably exactly that. Is that as every year passes, that the ideas in it, the things that we can kind of pull you know, the, as we peel the onion back and look at the layers of this movie and the ideas in it, you know, it just becomes more and more relevant. And I think that's why this is probably considered to be one of those great movies.
1: I think um, a lot of um, horror and science fiction films that are considered classics from this era, um, the ones that tend to resonate are the ones that tend, tend to be prophetic, like, the final line of this film when there are plenty of films that are released around the time that are, are probably better films in terms of entertainment or production quality. Yeah. Um, but
0: Definitely production as, quality.
1: Yeah, yeah. Definitely not um, as recognized as this film, just because they were wrong in what they, what they predicted. You know, I think uh, something um, like Blade Runner, might be a good example I mean it's an amazing amazingly well done film but I think a lot of um, fans would cite the increase of artificial intelligence technology increase Um,
0: yeah and the environmental and
1: yeah certainly so the things that make that film seem realistic especially to today's time that helps that film build a legacy beyond you know it's original box office, you
0: know? Yeah. Well, I I think that's one of the great things about science fiction is you're going to, it's going to be hit or miss, but when you make a science fiction movie, especially when you set it in the future, um, but even like the blob's not set in the future. The blob was set, um, the summer they made it. There's a calendar on the wall that says like July 57 or something like that. Good problem. Um, yeah. So, I mean, dating the film, but I mean, they, they didn't set out to make a movie about the future Um, they set out to make a movie about, you know, science, (laughs) I guess, um, (laughs) (laughs) but when you, when you make a science fiction picture, you know, I mean, you, you, you have that big whiteboard, you throw all your ideas on it. You try to look down the road and see like what will happen. I mean, we thought we'd have flying cars by now, which is something that hasn't come to pass and we're, we're almost at 2020 and you know, but so much of the other technology and things that came before they did in reality were in science fiction films of the fifties and sixties. I mean, you know, like the the Star Trek communicator is something people were like, handheld telephones. That's crazy. And, you know, tablets. <laughs> right, but see, like that is a part of our everyday lives now, and um, you know, so you're gonna you're gonna hit it, you're gonna miss it. Um, and the blob is one of those things that just, you know, like the ideas that are in it, you know, hits more than it misses. And that's, that's why, you know, we're still talking about it. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I, I was taken aback by the relationship of the teenagers in the movie. Um, it, it seemed a little bit odd, um, the way the three, I, and I forget their names. One of them is Tony. One of them is Mooch. I can't remember the third guy's name, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, who cares? It's not really important.
0: <laughs> but
1: yeah. one, of the, one of the guy's names is Mooch. I mean,
0: yeah, they're,
1: so they're all typically one character.
0: But yeah, like um, this this movie sort of follows, um, like a, a very sort of like age old, like teen movie trope. Where like first the kids are at odds with one another, and you know there's some conflict, and then they become fast friends, and then they have to rally behind the protagonist uh, hero. So like you know that that stuff that stuff has happened in so many movies. Um, you know, like, yeah, I mean
1: it's yeah, I mean the um, the blob element is yeah. Ultimately, this is your typical kind of like teen movie. They just with the inclusion of like the horror science fiction element that just you know is another you know genre that they add to the film.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think you're you're right that the the cars is a is a specifically chosen element. Of course that was a big part of the culture then, but you know like they you know they built this movie to sell. And uh, and having it be about teens and having it be about teen culture and the hot rodding and stuff like that was was a very specific choice. And I think that that helped sell the movie at the time. Uh, yeah,
1: what the, I don't know if you saw the trailer, original trailer for the film, but they feature hot, the race hot rodding thing in the in the trailer pro, uh, prominently.
0: I so. did not see that. That is that is interesting, but I'm glad that it validates my point. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed this. Um, you know, I enjoyed it a lot more in retrospect than I think I did as I was watching it the first time. But... Uh, you know, like like I said, I, I watched it the first time a couple of weeks ago, and then I rewatched it last night and took a handful of notes, um, and I, I enjoyed it a lot more on the second viewing just because I was sort of like, you know, kind of, like I said, peeling back the layers and stuff. Did you watch this
1: film with Chelsea the first time?
0: Originally, yes. That's why she sent you a message.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know if you knew, <laughs> she sent me a message. She was like, why did you watch, why did you pick the blob?" <laughs> I was like, why not?
0: Yeah, well, she's I, young. I, I,
1: I could feel her incredulity in, <laughs> in that first message.
0: She's judgy. She's very I judgy. Felt,
1: I, I felt like she blamed me for
0: choosing it and, and like... <laughs> right, because I subjected <laughs> like, her to it. And you said yes to watch it get together. <laughs> <laughs> she she made we we had a actually a really terrific day where like we just decided one Saturday that we were just not going to go out and we were just going to stay in our pajamas and watch movies all day and we did and it was fantastic um, and I made her watch The Blob and we just alternated picks so after we watched The Blob she made me watch Labyrinth so she got me back pretty good don't worry yeah
1: okay <laughs> <laughs> she's never gonna get me I watch whatever I want. <laughs>
0: It, it, yeah, except when I pick a movie for our podcast.
1: Oh yeah don't let don't let her sway you, man.
0: <laughs> I'll try. Hi Chelsea. <laughs> uh, I love you, dear. Um, so, do you have anything else you want to talk about for the blog?
1: Um, you know i I really find memorable movies that have scenes that take place in movie theaters. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, this film probably has the most, probably the most famous scene in a movie theater. Um, probably an American film. I, I I don't know what I think of another one that takes place in a theater as notable as the kind of like the panic scene where the blob infiltrates a theater that's playing a horror movie.
0: That is a good scene, yes, absolutely. I love that they call them the uh, midnight spook shows. Yeah, uh-huh. So that's... Uh... I miss midnight. I was thinking to myself, I miss midnight movies with the gang, you know, when, yeah. when they started um, moving midnight movies, quote unquote, to like earlier time slots, you know, because I mean, some people out there may not know. Um, but new release, new releases used to come out at midnight on Thursday, a lot of times. And so they started moving that back to 10 o'clock, and then it was 9 o'clock, and then it was 8 o'clock, and then it was 6 o'clock, which is about where they are now, right? Is that still the case? Yeah, 6 and 7. Yeah. Um, But we used to go see midnight movies all the time after work on Thursday nights, and we'd get food, and the whole gang would get together, and we'd go see a movie, and we'd talk about it afterwards. And honestly, you know, no bullshit. I mean, those were just some of the greatest times, man. Um, I miss that. absolutely. Uh, I miss I miss hanging out with everybody on Thursday nights. Yeah. Damn you Hollywood! Damn you for ruining try. midnight movies. <laughs> try to
1: try to keep it together, but uh, sometimes later movies, you know, a lot of theaters just don't want to stay open that late anymore. So a lot of times they'll have movies at midnight, but they'll have those earlier screenings. So the people who are to die hard, you got to watch it right away.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess for the biggest movies, you can still see a midnight movie because they'll run at a bunch of different times. So like you know like when the new Star Wars comes out, they'll have it at six o'clock, six fifteen, six thirty six forty five all the way up till like two o'clock in the morning. yeah um, so you could still go see a midnight movie for some of them, but uh, yeah.
1: I like um I mean I find that also like a lot of smaller theaters, art house and indie. They used to run midnight movies as you know special shows, things like Rocky Horror or yeah. The Room or what have you. They don't really offer things like that anymore. To be honest, I find that's less and less the case. I remember going to DC to E Street Cinema one year and watching a midnight movie for Casablanca.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. E Street doesn't do that anymore. They you
0: know, really? It's a shame. Yeah. I'm surprised. They do shows
1: like that, but they don't do it at midnight anymore. So.
0: Uh, they they do. I, I have not been attending any of them, but they still do. You know, midnight shows at a bunch of theaters in L.A. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, uh, you know, you've been you've been out here where where I live in the Inland Empire. It's it's uh, it's a good you know hour and forty five minutes to two hour trek into L.A. And uh, you know, it's it's not something that I do that often because the traffic around L.A. is just horrible. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's really got to be something special for me to you know take it into the city.
1: Um, yeah, I find that it, probably in the last year, I haven't been able to travel as much as I wanted to for films. Going out of town to watch limited engagements and such is something you and I would, would do fairly frequently, but I hadn't done it so much in this past year by myself or with our other movie friends.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, we, we went down to DC quite a few times to see some special screenings. And, uh,
1: actually, um, next week, Joe and I are going to be watching... Parasite they're playing it for like one day at E Street so oh nice looking forward to checking it out finally
0: yeah a little shout out to Joey P <laughs> yeah how's he doing good
1: yeah I think so
0: yeah I have to, uh, I have to catch up with him
1: yeah I, invite, I invited him we watched Joker together and I invited him to Gemini Man this evening but uh, he didn't return my te- text message <laughs> <laughs>
0: You mean he wasn't interested in going to see a 120 frame per second 3D version of Will Smith battling Will Smith?
1: Well, you should have heard his comments during the regular trailers before I knew he was being presented that way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I, suffice to say, I think he was not interested.
0: <laughs> well, that that is a shame. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, so, but that that may be a good uh, a good time to transition into um, our spoiler discussion of Joker. Uh, so for anyone that has not seen Joker, obviously we, we talk spoilers for every movie, uh, so Joker's not going to be any different. So if you haven't seen Joker, you can pause this podcast right here and you can come back after you've seen it. Or if you don't care, then you can just keep listening. But you have been warned. So um, I, I, I don't remember what you, what you put on your letterbox review, um, but did you enjoy Joker? I
1: did. I did not give it a score though, because I figured we would be talking about it. Um, and I didn't want, uh, people ask all the time, especially at the shop, whether you liked it or not. And I did like the film. I thought, um, I thought the film was, was good. Um, definitely not as good as some people say it is. Um, but definitely not, not as bad as other people say it is. Yeah. I'm firmly leaning towards uh, the positive here. Um, but I think with a movie that has a lot of people talk about, I didn't want to put like an actual like numeric rating to it that might temper people's opinion yeah. before they'd seen the movie.
0: Well, I'll just jump off on that and say that I thought it was a great-looking movie. Um, and you know that I'm a sucker for good production design and great cinematography and costumes and stuff like that. And, and this is a... a This is a grimy, dirty, lived in realistic or hyper realistic, um, visual film. Um, you know, obviously it wears its influences on its sleeve, you know, the, the Scorsese stuff and taxi driver and the griminess of the seventies. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed and appreciated that. I think it's a good performance by Joaquin Phoenix, um, I agree with you that I don't think it's as good as some people are saying. I think Joaquin Phoenix is getting a ton of recognition for this, and I think he's good in it. Um, but I think I think part of that is the physical transformation and the weight loss, um, which certainly I appreciate people going, <laughs> going the distance and, and having that type of commitment to a role. Um, but I think if you just look at the actual acting I think it's a very solid performance, um, but I'm not sure that it's—I'm not sure it's one of my favorites of his over the years.
1: Well, I mean, if you look at his body of work, you know, even before going into Joker, I always—I've felt that um, he's been one of the best actors working in Hollywood for years. Um, with his works with Anderson, and you know, I mean, movies like The Master like totally blow you away. Oh yeah. Um, This movie, not to say, not to do a Scorsese and say, you know, comic book movies aren't, like,
0: aren't cinema, but, um, you know. You don't want to get me started on that. Yeah, Joker is a character
1: that's been explored many different ways by many different people, so, you know, a unique take is, you know, is always welcome, but, you know, it's a character that's got a lot of history as opposed to something that, you know, might only exist as the single entity on film, you know. I'm speaking in terms of role, so... Yeah. So, I mean, Joker's been, you know, broken apart every, you know, hundreds if not thousands of different ways over, like, the 70-plus the years he's been around as a character.
0: So yeah, I, I, and he's one of the most iconic, you know, uh, comic book villains. He's, I think he's probably become one of the most iconic on-screen villains as well at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, you've had... Nicholson, Ledger, Leto, now Phoenix, uh, who evolved on. Caesar uh, Cesar Romero. Well, I wasn't, uh, well, I, g- I guess you have to include him because the, the 66 Batman movie, but I was just talking cinematic depictions. Um, Joker's been done so many times more than any other, you know, comic book villain. Um, you know, and I, why do you think that is? Why do you think he is the most popular comic book villain? Um, I
1: think a lot of it has to do with Batman being the most popular comic book hero. Okay. Um, so I think proximity certainly helps. And I think the strength of most superheroes, comic book characters, are the conflict that they have with their villains. So certainly with Batman being super popular and Joker being his most iconic, um, a lot of people would say that those characters are two sides of the same coin. So I think you could also attribute the popularity of a character like Spider-Man to the strength of his villains. Like, as a comic book reader, I find that his rogues gallery is second only to Batman's. Um, and with Joker being the king of Batman's by default, he's the most popular, I would say, in terms of um, mainstream in the world. you
0: know. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously Batman doesn't have any superpowers, but um, the Joker's not really physical... Uh, match for Batman? Uh, I mean, do you think it has something to do with the fact that uh, that you know the the nature of the character is that is that he is chaotic and unpredictable and crazy, and that he just creates different types of problems for Batman than the other villains?
1: Well, these characters have always uh, gone through transformations over the years, or their entire like character history and biography. A uh, character, like the Joker, used to just be like a thief. So somewhere along the way, has transitioned into psychopathic murderer, um, serial killer, um, happened fairly recently. You know, I'd say a lot of people would would say like the 1980s with books like Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Rises or um, The Dark Knight um, featuring Joker is kind of like a, a David Bowie-esque androgynous but very, psych- very psychopathic uh, killer. Um, okay kind of help temper Joker's transformation into like the end of the end of this century until like where he is currently. Um, a, a lot of people would say, and I think this film actually does an interesting, um, bit with it that, you know, Batman being a detective is super analytical, uh, uses a lot of logic, but with the Joker logic doesn't exist because it's unpredictable. You're right. Chaotic, anarchic, um, uh, symbols of anarchy. Um, the film, the Joker, um, brings a duality to that, that, uh, I have expressed to some people, you know, people who have, I've talked to who have seen the film already. Um, I've always felt that the death of Bruce Wayne's parents in the comics, and this film kind of, you know, kind of follows Joker. So you don't really see it so much, but the death of Thomas and Martha Wayne is a result of the Gotham police being corrupt, the government not being able, um, protected citizens. Okay. Um, in Joker, the same thing happens to Arthur Fleck, um, uh, Joaquin, um, Joaquin's character who becomes the Joker in the title. Maybe or may not. There's been a lot of speculation after the film has been released, but, um, Arthur is also a victim of the government. You know, he gets, uh, he's unable to be protected by, you know, people who are supposed to, his adopted mother, um, social services, uh, lack of access to medical care he's 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 failed by the government and that causes brings about his full transformation into the joker so i think with those two i mentioned earlier they're batman and joker two sides of the same coin i think um this movie showcasing the the origin the birth of joker um kind of hammered home that point i've been arguing for years about you know
0: yeah but you, you mentioned social services and the failure of, of the system to, uh, to improve the quality of life in, in people who have mental health conditions. Um, I, I think that the pointed commentary in this film about our healthcare system in that regards certainly has merit. And To be honest, I, I, I feel like the most damning thing in the movie is the conversation he has with his caseworker, uh, and I, I don't know the name of the actress, Um, where, you know, it's, it, it's the last time they're going to meet. And he, and he basically says, you don't listen that you ask me the same questions and he doesn't say this, but they keep prescribing him the same drugs. Um, and they're not really trying to treat him. They're just trying to, uh, sedate him in a way, um, you know, to, to make sure that he is not a threat um yeah, it's, they're it's not horrible. actually get,
1: make sure he hasn't hurt anyone yet.
0: Yeah, they're just they're not actually trying to improve his mental health. They're actually just trying to, you know, to get him out of the way. <laughs> you know, um and I I think that that's that's the most condemning thing, I think, because I I think that there's a lot of truth in that. It's the way that we actually treat uh people with mental health conditions is that well, like uh, he, a lot of the, the treatments don't work. They're just there to to make us feel better about it.
1: Well, you look at the era of the, where this film is set. There are little earmarks that suggest it's 19, 1980, A few of them, yeah. Um, so, the state of mental health during that period, um, in terms of uh, government assistance, you know, this is around. This is the period where people would get um, released out of uh, asylums because of overcrowding. And there was a lot of people who were um, with mental illness that were just out on the streets being exposed without treatment whatsoever. So um, in the film, Arthur, he had at least a, a backbone of it um, that was taken away from him that that caused him to slip. Um, but there are you know, thousands of more documented instances in American history of people just being released you know to, to the public at large. With no treatment whatsoever, or no future for treatment whatsoever. Yeah, people, you know, people like um, PTSD suffers from from war or crime. Yeah. I mean, that still happens today.
0: Yes, uh, personally, I I think I was into this movie while I was watching it, and and there are a lot of good things that I can point to about the film. Uh, but afterwards, I was sort of like. You know, what's the point? It's just so depressing and so bleak to the point of like near boredom almost. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I ever felt that though. It it just you know it's just it's just wave after wave of negativity. Um, so as a, as an audience member, I didn't feel like there was anything for me to like take away from it. Um, you know, that was positive. Uh, yeah, and, and you know a- it's. <laughs> It works as sort of like, uh, you know, an alternate, you know, origin for for this character, you know, and they do tie in, you know, the Bruce Wayne and the Thomas Wayne, uh, you know, story. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was very turned off by how, just how dark and bleak the ending was.
1: I mean, the ending is certainly bleak, but the Joker is a character where... he's got an eternal quality to him, where it doesn't matter what he does, he'll return. Um, because as a character, he's way too popular for DC to ever, you know, do a death of Joker right. kind of storyline. Even though they they've tried it, that um, then they explain it away with some ridiculous stuff, which I'm not going to get into necessarily. Um, but you know, as a character study. Um, the breakdown of Arthur Fleck into the Joker, I thought, was very fascinating, and of course, that's tempered by Joaquin Phoenix's very strong performance. Yeah, um, you're right. The movie is fairly depressing, but you know, as a character, that's you know, seeing a character like the Joker, who had dreams and aspirations, you know, that's being unable to attain it. That is depressing. So sometimes the world's depressing. This. You know, Gotham is probably the most depressing place in fiction, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, do you, Do you have um, any interesting little uh, fun moments you would you notice in the film? Fun, maybe not being the right word because we we're just talking about, but
0: not not um, necessarily it, fun, but like I I do appreciate and enjoy the unreliable narrator quality to the film. Um, that whole like sort of fight club shift that you get uh, when you realize that that the relationship he 's having with the i can 't remember her name but the Zaze Beats character uh, is is in his mind and that a lot of things happening in the, in the film are actually just um, you know a manifestation of his his psychosis um, So And and specifically that moment when he's in her apartment and you realize that she knows who he is but that she doesn't really know him uh, and that their relationship has been, you know, not real. Uh, There were some gasps in in the theater, in the screening that that I was in where people didn't kind of see that coming. (laughs) um, I had a good time with that moment.
1: The one thing I wish they hadn't done is that they do a sixth sense thing where they go
0: through each of those moments where he he's with her? Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I wish they hadn't done that. That that movie, you know,
1: that scene would have been a lot stronger if it had kept people confused. <laughs> you know, I
0: you you might you might be right. Absolutely, I think that's a great point. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, look, I I think it's a good movie. I think it's got a good performance at the heart of it. I think it's a great-looking movie. I think it's an interesting story to tell as an alternate version for this character. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to rush to rewatch it anytime soon, personally. Mm. So,
1: yeah, it might be a while. I mean, I like I like the idea of letting it percolate in my mm. mind for you know for a while before I tackle it again. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting though that this film. Being a drama is actually like the shortest of all like the their most recent DC films too, which I actually I appreciate. Even though I thought the movie could have shaved an extra eight
0: minutes. Well, eight minutes there's or out of the film. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's it's not built on set pieces. It's built on you know character. So yeah. I, I think that's that's one of its strengths, obviously. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I, I this this does not fit in with any of the other stuff that DC is doing. And I kinda yeah. like that. I, I kinda like the, Absolutely. the sort of let it stay
1: separate. I mean that's definitely
0: what I want. I don't
1: want this attached to anything. Yeah. Um let it be a solo
0: solo film. Yeah. I I may have said this before on the podcast, but like I think that's the best thing that DC could possibly do is take their best stories and give them to good filmmakers or great filmmakers and have them just do what they want with it, and kind of like what they've done with a lot of their animated uh, movies, uh, where there's not necessarily continuity between many of them, um, but they're just taking one comic book story and just doing it really well. Um, And just, like, don't follow the Marvel formula. Don't try to beat Marvel at their own game. You're not going to. Um, Things like this are going to make your movies really pop and stand out in the marketplace versus the other comic book movies.
1: Yeah, I mean, look look how well Joker did this month, you know? 90, 93 million opening weekend. Yeah. So, for an R-rated film, no less, yeah. So, I think uh, I have no problem with there being multiple Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman like existing in film and TV at the same time.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, you know, I it's just like reading a comic book where they have different artists working on a title. That's all it is. So
0: yeah, the, I, they don't
1: have to have continuity. I mean, Elseworlds, like this Joker story, is what they call an Elseworlds, which is altered universe kind of a thing. Those have always been among my favorite stories. You know, I think tackling those, especially because. You don't need to bog them down with character history. It makes them way more accessible than having to watch twenty movies to understand Avengers endgame.
0: Yeah, and well that's gonna give you a lot more variety as a viewer too, and allow you to sort yeah. of like pick and choose your entry points into watching this stuff. Um, it gives you flexibility. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I think uh, I, I think that would be a, a terrific approach for them to adopt going forward. Yeah,
1: if you're gonna kill Bruce Wayne's parents over and over again in every film, regardless,
0: <laughs> at least make
1: at least you know make it make it a point of of difference and change. If you're gonna like change Batman's story, if you're just gonna kill him on just to kill him on screen, what's the point? You know? If you're gonna have him get killed so he becomes like an evil Green Lantern, you know, let's do that story. Then I, then I'd welcome them and like broken pearls all over the alleyway. There
0: you go. <laughs> well, hopefully, because uh, Marvel's doing that new Disney Plus series What If, right? So hopefully yes. like they'll do a lot of that stuff with Marvel on that show, too. But that's animated, right? Uh,
1: yeah, but I think there's a lot of speculation about what, you know, because they're they're still supposed to be set within the continuity of the films. So there's a lot of speculation that perhaps these animated stories are going to be kind of like um, focus group tests to see what stories they want to do if they want to do Ultimate universe story, tales for multiverse. Okay. Um, down the line. Cool. So we'll see what happens.
0: All hey, right, man. Uh, anything else you got on Joker? Or are we ready to wrap this up?
1: Mm, just a couple things. Like, I really like... There's that small scene where Bruce Wayne meets Arthur, and he does the little, you know, bat pull thing. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, I, I wonder, like, in this world, you know, when when the Waynes get killed, you know, did Bruce Wayne watch Blow Up or did he watch Zora the Gayblade? And which of those movies influenced him to become a costume of a hero in the future? Hopefully, hopefully Blow Up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I think we both already know the answer to that. Yeah. Either, um, either
1: one would be awesome.
0: So. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, cool. I don't know what we're watching next, but... Uh, it's your choice. It's your it choice. Is, it choice, is my so. choice. So, well, why don't we go with uh, the the classic, original Nightmare on Elm Street?
1: Uh, okay. You go yeah. with that? I haven't, I haven't watched that movie in, like,
0: 25 years, yeah. so... me either, so let's, let's do it. So I want, I want to pick a horror movie, and we're, we're coming up to Halloween, so... Uh, and, and this is a movie that I think was on our poll last year, um, which did not get chosen, but, uh, I think I'm just going to pull the trigger and say, we're going to go with Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street for next week. Um, What the hell? Yeah, exactly. So, um, go from one maniacal madman to another maniacal madman.
1: Okay, cool. I'm
0: looking forward to it. Nice. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, sir?
1: Of course. You can find me at filmspash.com, um, on Twitter at juniorbio, and of course on Letterboxd as well.
0: Nice. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd. You can uh, you can join the Celluloid Jelly Facebook group uh, by clicking the link in the show notes. And you can find me on Twitter at setting the frame. And uh, that's that's terrific. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you, Cesar. Thanks, CJ. Alright. See you guys. Bye. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by PodBeam. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.